This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello you're listening to the times Redbox politics podcast i'm patrick mcguire still in for matt chorley until tomorrow in our big thing today we're talking grammar schools both liz truss and rishi sunak want to bring them back but what is the history of the debate that has come back to haunt the Tories and is it really the right idea for Britain's education system? But before then, we had our columnist panel. No Indian night this week, so James Marriott was joined by Martha Gill. The Columnists on Times Radio. Well, we've got James in the studio. We've also got Martha Gill joining us on the line. Morning, Martha. Morning. How are you doing? Good, very good, yep. Good, good. Um, enjoyed your selection of stories to talk about this morning quite fun well wonderful let's get cracking shall we have you read james's column this morning martha do you agree that young people i think that the three of us i think all three of us count as young despite appearances in my in my case <laughs> are, 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 do you, are you in desperate need of optimism as james says definitely definitely um yeah i thought this was an excellent column basically saying that um uh you know the young are in desperate need of optimism because um they can't build anything they don't have uh their own houses to sort of start establishing hopefully the future there lots of people don't have kids until much later now can't simply can't afford it um you're sort of stuck in a in a in a sort of nihilistic hedonism perhaps i don't know you didn't say hedonism but i suppose the reaction would be just to uh enjoy the moment rather than working hard the future. Uh, I, I have to say, her. Martha, I'm looking at James and he's not screaming hedonism at me. No hedonism <laughs> for me. That's never my solution to anything. He, 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 James Marriott's what appearance is the antonym James? of hedonism. Just, just plunge into depression. Is that what we should all do? Yeah, just... Read poetry? Exactly. Yeah, poetry's always the answer. Just go and Gloomy find a poetry. book. So you had this epiphany, James, that young people have had a raw deal. We can't buy houses. You know, the, the dream of the post-war baby boom and 2.4 children and lovely semis in the suburbs and nice, well-manicured gardens has all evaporated. And you had this epiphany when you were watching Phoebe Bridges at the O2 Academy in Brixton, according to your column, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I mean, it's an epiphany that I've had before and I sort of it comes relatively regularly. But I always think, you know, you shouldn't... I, if I could write columns on the housing crisis all the time, I probably would, but I would begin to bore people. But yeah, I just think it's sort of... I just find it a fascinating kind of crazy situation that this thing that was once a completely banal assumption of middle-class life that you would be able to buy a house and have a family um, and achieve kind of reasonable financial security is becoming less and less possible. And I think also the older I get, 
it's kind of extraordinary you know I, 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 i'm still sort of living in a in a room in a shared flat almost everyone i know has got one friend who owns a house uh and obviously things are a bit you know it's not everywhere isn't as bad as london but i think private rents are rising faster than they have, ever have done they're higher than they ever have been and it's just sort of i just think what's where's the situation going to go and it just sort of my column was about the idea that i think most sort of most previous decades people have had a good idea of where their life's going to go what they can aim for a house a garden and i just sort of think all that stuff is sort of disappearing and that kind of vision of the future is evaporating and it's kind of yeah i, I find it a bit depressing and, and millennials have been trapped in a sort of semi-permanent adolescence haven't they martha Yes, yeah, indeed. And it, it, it sort of struck me for a moment there when James was talking about the dream of suburban living uh, behind a white picket fence or whatever. I suppose that's more American, isn't it? Um, was something that the generation just before us, Generation X, were kind of in rebellion against, mm. thinking, oh, I can't think of anything worse. Anything more <laughs> stifling than living in the suburbs I grew up in, yeah. Exactly. And now that's a, a distant dream <laughs> for our generation. Um and yeah, I suppose stuck in adolescence. And this is uh, something I want to write about is is, is the idea that um, our generation are, are just uh, don't work as as hard as um, the older generations want us to. And we're perfectly right to do that because, you know, even working really, really hard, um, uh, throwing everything into our jobs, uh, you know, 14 hours a day is not going to get us some of us. Um, the same uh, the same luxury as our as the previous generation enjoyed. So a lot of us started to sort of give up on that and look for other things at work, uh, more of a work life balance, which is a discombobulating to employers uh, who think that everyone should have their nose to the grinder. But but for millennials, it sort of doesn't seem worth it. And I, and I think you're completely right with that sort of slightly nihilistic response to the sort of overwhelming economic barriers that, you know, it's really hard to get on the housing ladder. You'll work 14-hour days, but your salary doesn't go as far as it seemed to for your for your older cousins or your parents or certainly not your grandparents. And, and James, I think you articulate this quite well. You find this is reflected in our in our culture. You know, you say pessimism is a leitmotif of our age, a plangent minor chord sounding through our culture and politics. You can follow its echoes through the nihilism of online humour, the moody, claustrophobic disaffection of bedroom pop, the booming dystopian fiction. Yeah, I think I think there is a kind of... I mean, all culture, you know, I think throughout kind of history, there have always been sort of, you know, pessimistic and gloomy art forms but i think it's an especially especially a thing today and i i i also think a lot of you know the kind of all these movements like the you know people going on birth strikes because of climate change i think there's a kind of particular fascination of the most apocalyptic versions of climate change which i think are yes partly driven by climate change but i also think people's general sense of political optimism and the future is so profoundly informed by their personal experience that i think a lot of the kind of things that are pessimistic about culturally or in our wider politics although there may be problems, a lot of those kind of really instinctive feelings people have about whether things are going well or badly are just so traced back to your personal experience. And I just think it's ultimately slightly dangerous for society not to provide its citizens with a kind of sense of personal optimism because people have to buy into the system. They have to believe the system's working for them. And there are all kinds of studies that show, you know, uh, declining, declining confidence in democracy, in capitalism, in free speech among young people. And I think all these things are linked basically to the housing crisis and to the fact that young people just are not accruing wealth and financial security at anything like the rate uh, all the previous generations before them have. Well, we haven't heard a huge amount about the housing crisis or certainly plans to build more houses. Rishi Sunak is actually saying, I won't build on the Greenbelt, I'm going to protect the Greenbelt and thus not 
exploit it for development, to build houses so young people can get on the property ladder. Instead, we're hearing a lot about personality from the two candidates. I wanted to talk to you about Sajid Javid. It's big endorsement in The Times this morning. He endorsed Liz Truss and he had, Martha, some pretty pretty strong words for Rishi Sunak, who is both his friend and his protégé. He, he was his chief secretary mm. to the Treasury when he was Chancellor. He succeeded him as Chancellor. You know, there's that memorable picture of them outside the cinema having gone to watch Star Wars arm in arm, grinning ear to ear. <laughs> but now, to quote Jeremy Thorpe, you know, no greater love uh, have a man than this. He's laid down his friends for his life. <laughs> um yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, personally, I think friendship in politics is sort of a bad thing. I mean, to put your friendship with mem- with particular people in your party or maybe even in a different party before your politics, I think that's quite a corrupting force, actually. I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, what happened with Owen Paston when he broke lobbying rules, um, people came which was absolutely something he should have been expelled from the party from. But a lot of people um, uh, came forward to defend him because they were friends with him. If you look at Jacob Rees-Mogg, who later admitted this was a mistake, he sort of, he thought he was doing the right thing in defending Owen Patterson, despite this, this um, rule-breaking he'd done, because it was a matter of loyalty, personal loyalty to this friend. And I, I just think friendship, while it's a lovely thing, and great to have in a workplace. It kind of has no place in political decisions, um, no matter what those political decisions are. So I actually think this is fine for uh, Sajid Javid to have so-called betrayed Rishi Sunak, even though they look really cute going to they did, uh, Star Wars <laughs> together. <laughs> both, both very, you know, Rishi Sunak is the only man who has made ever made Sajid Javid look tall, I think. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it, James, this, you know, blood and friendship being thicker than water in politics. The other example I'm thinking of right now, I think we're going to do the top five political betrayals on tomorrow's show, so do, do tune in for that, is Ed Miliband and David Miliband. And obviously everybody remembers, to quote Michael Fallon, Ed Miliband stabbing his brother in the back to get the Labour leadership, but they fundamentally disagreed on what the Labour Party was for, how the economy should be run, and if we're getting a Freudian about it, on who was best to, uh, to defend their father's uh, legacy as a philosopher of socialism. So what do you think? Do you think friendship should always come first? I mean, the, the world of uh, the political world of literary journalism is pretty vicious. Do you put your friends first when you're having very principled disagreements over uh, Sally Rooney's new novels? <laughs> Well, when 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 it's when it comes to opinion on Sally Rooney, my loyalty to Sally Rooney beat everything, obviously. But I no, I agree with I agree I agree with Martha. I think, you know, I think friendship probably just complicates things and you know unnecessarily muddies decisions that should be matters of principle. I, I assume if you've got that far in politics, you're reasonably uh, cynical or realistic about how far your friends are going to always stick by you for reasons of friendship. I think it's interesting that you mention um, Ed and David Miliband, and I think perhaps political friendships are more successful across the divide. I remember there was a time when I think it was Jess Phillips and Jacob Rees-Mogg were making a big deal about having a kind of yes. uh, cross-political friendship. And I think when you're starting from the position that you're both in different parties, you're both going to tear chunks of each other, t- chunks out of each other in Parliament, but it's sort of a surprising, lovely extra that you have a friendship, and it's a sign that people on different sides of the divide can get on. I think, I think, 
that's probably a more successful, more realistic kind of friendship when the sort of when than the kind of friendship where you're right next to each other in the same party, competing, and these sort of tiny ideological differences within parties always seem to tear people apart much more than you know when you're when you're across the when you're across the aisle from someone. And I think maybe the maybe the solution to political friendship is befriend your enemies and be sceptical about the people in your own party. Yeah, I often see uh, MPs of all stripes across the divide, drinking across the divide in the strangers' bar on the Commons Terrace, um, which is either heartening or disgusting, depending on how you, th- <laughs> how you think about our parliamentary democracy. Martha, we're putting a, you know, perhaps we're putting too fine a point on what Sajid Javid has written in the Times this morning, saying Liz Truss is, you know, the heir to both Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Rishi Sunak <laughs> is going to lead us into a sleepwalk into a middle-income, uh, low-growth, high-tax economy. Is he not taking the Yossa Hughes approach to politics, which is giz a job? Of course he is, and uh, he's probably it's probably the politic decision to make right now. I mean, you've seen even Penny Mordaunt who. Whose, whose campaign was completely trashed by Liz Truss um, and her campaign, who, who really uh, did a lot of damage mm. to Penny Morden. And Penny Morden was probably furious about it. Uh, but she's got on board um, with Liz Truss now. So, so really, I think, I think, um, I think um, everyone can see the way the wind's blowing and what side their bread is buttered, to use two cliches at once. And uh, and and have decided that uh, yeah that their best chance of future success in the next cabinet is uh, is with Liz Truss. I think lots of people are coming to that conclusion for some reason. I don't know. You know, to quote Mrs. Merton, what is it about Liz Truss and her thirty-four point poll lead that first attracted you? To her. I couldn't possibly say I'm not going to impute uh, cynicism into the minds of the cabinet. Now let's let's talk about something a bit different, shall we? Batgirl after about 100 million quid, has been cancelled. Have either of you ever done anything so bad? Because that's why the film is cancelled. It's apparently so bad that it can't possibly grace a cinema screen. James, have you ever done anything so bad that you couldn't possibly reveal it? You know, have you ever written a, you know, a terrible poem that you haven't even revealed to anyone? Oh my God, I'm trying to think. I, I have to say, probably all my disasters, all my career disasters, are very boring and tedious to explain, which, uh, and they all probably involve my last job in an antiquarian bookshop where... I was expected to go and buy rare books, and then the idea would be that you sell them on for a greater for a greater for a greater profit. But I was always terrible at buying books, and I had a little uh, embarrassing stack of things that I was trying to hide from my bosses uh, that I'd spent money on pointlessly that no one was ever going to want to buy. What you got into? You got into a bookshop and said, "Look, I just found this John Goldsworthy Penguin for fifty p. Maybe we can sell this for a hundred quid." That sort of thing. Or were you spilling coffee on you know prices? No, of it was more. It was more, it was more the first, but sometimes it was more than fifty p that I was spending. It all got a bit hairy, um, but fortunately, I left that career behind me and went to journalism, where you can't really spend anyone's money, which is probably better for me. You, you never spilled anything on anything expensive, though, did you? I, I didn't actually. No, I didn't. I don't think I ever did. Uh, which is kind of amazing looking back. I'm pleasantly surprised, Martha. Any uh, any professional shames? Uh, any uh, you know unfinished novels and screenplays that are languishing on your hard drive that can't possibly see the night a light of day? Uh, well, something happened to me quite early in my career. I was a I was a, a blogger for the Telegraph, um, and uh, I used to write a blog for them every couple of days and I was very enthusiastic about this and I thought my output was brilliant and then uh, at one point the Telegraph then decided to get uh, to to get rid of its whole archive of blogs just, just kind of um, take them offline uh, save money or something um, and at the time I was heartbroken but now when I think back to the kind of stuff I wrote I don't know age 25 or something with about in about two hours each one 
Um, I, I, I'm quite relieved that it's all unfindable now. <laughs> well, you're saying you hadn't cracked it and you hadn't become the wisest political commentator ever at 25. No, no. I mean, obviously, that, that's what's happened to me now, but uh, of course. It, took, it took a while <laughs> yeah. to get there. Well... That's why, that's why, you know, self-respecting political commentators of all ages should write for The Times, Red Box, which you should subscribe to incidentally by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. Now, just before I let you go, I've got a question to ask you. James, have you spotted Nick Clegg on your travels recently? No, I haven't. And if, if I do, I will be, I'll be horrified. But yes, he is going to be back in London, isn't he? He's come back to London after his exile in Silicon Valley. Go maybe, back. Yeah, maybe, maybe he's coming to endorse Liz Truss. <laughs> Who isn't? Yeah. Martha, have you spotted Nick Clegg yet? Oh, I haven't, but I can't wait. I think it's going to be brilliant. I want to know whether he's still wearing all his Silicon Ga- um, Valley gear with his hoodie and his flip-flops that we've seen him in before, or whether he's going to take on a more Londony look, you know. He'll be straight back in his red cords before we know it, I think. <laughs> anyway, if either of you see him, do, do let me know and we'll get you back on to report from the front line. You can read James and Martha in The Times regularly. Just go and get yourself a digital subscription or pick up a paper. But now it's time for our big thing on the return of grammar schools. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Well, it was once the Tory policy that dared not speak its name. David Cameron told his party to get over it. But now both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are promising to lift the ban on new grammar schools. Selection at 11 was part of British life for decades and in pockets of the country, most notably Kent, Lincolnshire and Northern Ireland, it still is. But then came the 1960s and a brave new world for education. This school aims to equip all children for the needs of the modern world and at the same time develop the natural talents of each. The children of the post-war baby boom ended up in comprehensive schools, a brainchild of Harold Wilson's Labour governments. Anthony Crossland, his education secretary, infamously told his wife, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to destroy every grammar school in England and Wales and Northern Ireland. Tory governments followed his lead, and for some politicians of the era, it was very personal. John Prescott, for instance, has always said that the Bain the 11 Plus was the motor of his political ambition. Here's well, what he told I felt, the BBC. Um, a failure. 
I failed it. My brother got the 11 plus and he got the bike from my father. <laughs> and my sister, she got the present for passing the 11 plus. Uh, I'd gone to the secondary modern and uh, you knew you'd failed. So it brought it home to me that that one test was deciding what you were going to do in your life. I and felt angry about it. Then in 1997, Tony Blair promised to get rid of grammar schools for good, as he told this rally filmed on a camcorder. We would modernise the comprehensive system to take account of the different abilities of children. They say turn the clock back into the old days of dividing children into sheep and goats through the 11 plus, turn four out of five schools into secondary moderns, and in the process recreate the chaos and misery of the 11-year-old failures. A year later, in 1998, he passed a law banning the opening of new grammar schools, but that wasn't the end of the debate. Theresa May, in 2017, had a go at bringing them back. When we look at the impact of grammar schools, if you look at attainment on, uh, for disadvantaged and non-disadvantaged children, the attainment gap in grammar schools is virtually zero, which it isn't in other schools. It's opportunity for young people to go where their talents will take them. I know the right honourable gentleman believes in equality... The right honourable gentleman believes in equality of outcome. I believe in equality of opportunity. Yeah. He, he believes in levelling down. We believe in levelling up. That decades-old debate continued across the floor of the Commons. I wonder if it's possible for her this morning within the um, quiet confines of this House to name any educational experts that back her proposals on new grammar schools and more selection. As with Brexit, the Tories faced intense pressure from the right. We think there should be grammar school opp opp opportunities for every single child in this country. Why do we think that? Well, 7% of people go to the private schools. They are now dominating politics, the media, sport, the public services. Social mobility is now lower than it was 50 years ago. And, of course, their own backbenchers. Take David Davis, a grammar school boy himself, and Graham Brady, who was sacked from David Cameron's front bench for his support for their return. Grammar schools were probably one of the most transformative public policies of the middle of the 20th century. They took a very large population of working-class kids and gave them opportunities that they would never have got any other way. And actually, I'm an example. Single mum, working class background, relatively poor, and yet I had all the opportunities really Britain could offer in educational and career terms. As most local authorities got rid of their grammar schools, we've seen social mobility uh, take a nosedive. We've seen far fewer people from state-educated backgrounds uh, in the professions and law and the upper reach of the civil service, uh, the judiciary uh, and in politics. And I think it's one of the things which is building a uh, less cohesive society. So it's no surprise we've ended up here nearly six decades on from the beginning of the end for grammar schools in England and Wales. Liz Truss wants to lift the ban. Rishi Sunak is talking about going even further. But as you heard from me earlier, I believe in educational excellence. I believe education is the most powerful way that we can transform people's lives. But I also think there's a lot we can do with the school system as we have it. Now, what Michael Gove did several years ago was transformative. And Michael took on some vested interests, challenged consensus, brought in some reforms that mean that millions of our children now are better off. Right? Now, but that's a conservative way to do it. It's not about throwing more money at the problem. It's about reforming the system to get better outcomes. 
Well, is this all just a nostalgia trip for the Conservative Party or if the government wants to level up and spread opportunity equally across the country? That's England and Wales, by the way. Scotland has always controlled its own schooling system. Are grammar schools an idea whose time has come again? Well, awkwardly for both contenders, Margaret Thatcher, another grammar school girl, closed more selective schools than any other ministers, either Labour or Tory, as Education Secretary. But earlier I spoke to her reforming Education Secretary, Lord Baker. Safe to say he's unimpressed by the state of this particular debate. Well, whether it's to, uh, come again or whether it's back to the future is, is very debatable. Um, now, I went to two grammar schools, uh, one in the north in Southwater, one then down in London. And I do know that in the 1940s, they really helped lots of poor students get a good start in life. But that is no longer the case. Uh, grammar schools are now full of, grammar schools today are now full of middle-class children in leafy suburbs, usually in areas where there are very high house prices because that's getting them into the grammar school. And um, therefore that does not reflect the need of children today. We've got um, two million disadvantaged children, and they'd much prefer to have technical schools than grammar schools. Does it worry you that the Conservative Party seems to be looking backwards for ideas and not perhaps looking at more innovative solutions to educational inequality? Yes, I'm, I'm saddened by that because what we need now are many more technical schools. We've got massive job vacancies at the moment that can't be filled in data analysts, in uh, in software uh, engineers, in the engineers, mechanical and electrical, in the net zero in, uh, industries, uh, in, in the whole supply chains, and even a massive number of shortages in the construction sector, the construction industry. And so, in fact, you do need more technical training. Now, the trouble with grammar schools today is that they're full of middle-class children um, living in leafy suburbs, uh, and in housing areas where the house prices are high because of the grammar school. And this does no help to the two million disadvantaged children in our country. And if there were to be a return of grammar schools, I think they should only be in disadvantaged areas in the 51 areas that the Department of Education has designated as requiring educational help. Uh, and these are areas like the West Midlands, like Northumbria, East London, and places of that sort where you've got high record numbers of, of NEETs. You've got maybe 20% NEETs in these areas. And uh, I think if they're going to have grammar schools, they should only be in those areas for a start. Um, the other thing is that if there are going to be new grammar schools, the people who don't pass are regarded as failures, failures at 11. Well, no education system should produce failures at 11. And alongside any new grammar school, there should also be a technical school or a creative art school or a sports school or a different school which those who don't get in can attend. And then you would go back to what was the original concept back in 1945, there would be three types of schools, grammar schools, technical schools and secondary moderns. Now what dropped out very quickly were the technical schools and then about six or seven years, they were all closed because of snobbery. Every, everybody wanted to be the school on the hill, not the one down in shabby premises, dirty jobs, greasy rags in the town. And one of the biggest mistakes we made was to let them disappear. Germany adopted our education system at the end of the war, and they do have grammar schools. Uh, 
and they have technical schools, we are schools, and they have high schools. And that's one of the reasons why they're richer than we are. So if you bring back grammar schools, you've got to create the tripartite system. You have been the driving force between, uh, behind the introduction of university, university technical colleges, UTCs in this country, which yes. have, have been met with some resistance from conservative governments. Why do you think that is? Because that's one potential solution, well, isn't it? Selection, I've had, perhaps. I've had, virtually, I've had virtually no support for 12 years. I've been promoting these. We now have 47 of them. And they're some of the most successful schools in the country. Um, we're very proud of our destination record. About 30% of our students become apprentices at 16, mostly at 18. 50% uh, go to universities to study STEM subjects, which is double the national average, and the rest get local jobs. And we only survived because George Osborne and David Cameron liked them, and Michael Gove tried to stop them. And the only education secretary that said some nice things about them was... Um, and Nadine Zawili, he's now the Chancellor, but he won't be there for long. Um, and he rather liked them. And we're going to be allowed to apply for more under the free schools, uh, uh, from free school bids, which are about to start. And so I, I, I believe these are desperately needed because we have these huge job vacancies at the moment and they're not being filled by ordinary schools and they wouldn't be filled by grammar schools either. So the answer is... Grammar schools are not going to produce construction workers. Grammar schools are not going to produce people who work in, in the supply chain supplying uh, uh, superstores. Um, and, you know, they might produce some uh, uh, digital engineers and they might produce others, but not many. You see, when I went to that grammar school in Southport, towards the six, it was a very good grammar school. The only lesson I can remember was carpentry. And for two hours a week, we learned how to make dovetail and tenon joints. And I can still remember doing it. And so I learned how to use a chisel and how to use a plane and how to measure accurately. And I still have those talents. That's all dropped now. Drama schools don't even do that now. So the answer perhaps is not separating children into, into wolves and sheep at 11, but perhaps, as you said before, waiting until they're 14 years old and seeing which direction they want to take their studies in and building an education system that is fit for that. But, of course, that would involve abandoning many years of educational practice in this country, wouldn't it? It would indeed. There was a very good report given to Labour in 2008 by Michael Thompson recommending a 14 to 18 segment of education. It was strongly supported by David Blunkett and Andrew Adonis, the ministers, but Tony Blair didn't like it because he said it would threaten A-levels. That was the big missed opportunity in education reform this century. We should have established a 14 to 18. We've discovered, as we recruit at 13, 14, that youngsters at that age often know very clearly what they want to study. And there's just been a report, just reported in the last 10 days or so, by a very distinguished educational body uh, who have surveyed the feelings of children at school today, and 45% of them said they were fed up with the subjects they're having to study in, 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 in the present curriculum. Because the present curriculum is just eight academic subjects. Um, and uh, children between 11 and 16 are not taught any technical, practical. They're not taught to use tools. They're not used to, to even taught how to use computers. In fact, the teaching of computers in schools since 2016 has fallen by 40%.
Can you imagine anything dafter and sillier in an age when we're desperately short of data skills? The, the present education system is on in exactly the wrong rails at the moment, and it must change. And I hope that, in fact, whoever wins will change it. But not, both of them seem dead set on restoring grammar schools. Lord Baker, before I let you go, I wanted to ask about somebody who has dominated this leadership race, at least in spirit, Mrs Thatcher. Both candidates have been burnishing their Thatcherite credentials, and indeed Liz Truss seems to be modelling much of her uh, pitch to the Tory membership on Mrs Thatcher herself. You knew her very well. You served in her cabinet. What do you yes, think? What, what, what do you think of her resurgence in, in this debate? Do you think either of them I has a real claim to her mantle? would be simply appalled at the concept of getting, giving tax cuts which were not matched by government expenditure. Look, in the critical budget of 1981, in the depth of a very deep recession, a very, very deep recession, she didn't cut taxes, she cut government expenditure. That was a very brave thing to do, but it established the basis of sound finances, which allowed Nigel Lawson, some six or seven years later, to cut income tax from 65% to 40%. Um, and uh, she would simply be appalled. She wouldn't sign off that at all. She wouldn't sign off either of their policies on tax, Margaret Thatcher. But no she, way. Absolutely no way. But you think she'd be particularly unimpressed with Liz Truss's prospectus? I think the both, if they're, they're both now committed to financial tax cuts. And at the moment, this is not... Is good, but look, neither tax cuts or supply chain changes, both of which are acceptable, if you like, actually will guarantee economic growth. If Look, our economic growth for the last 12 years has been appalling. It's been just barely over 1%. So this is 12 years of conservative failure. Let's make no bones about that. And if you're going to get the growth rates up to 2 and 3%, like Germany and the Netherlands, you've got to actually produce more skilled and technical people because they are the people who will create wealth. They are the people who will create wealth. They'll be imaginative, creative, inventive. And, um, uh, uh, and that's, where money, that's where growth comes from. That was the former Education Secretary Lord Baker, great reforming minister under Margaret Thatcher. He reminds us that to many of those who lived through it, selection at 11 and grammar schools are not the answer. And for the Conservative Party, apparently neither are Rishi Sunak nor Liz Truss. Now, I'm joined by Jonathan Gullis now, a Tory MP who's backing Liz Truss and a former teacher who's one of the most vocal advocates for the return of selection in the state sector, unlike Lord Baker, Margaret Thatcher's former Education Secretary, who we just heard from there. Morning, Jonathan. Morning, how are you? Very well, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. I was going to put a question to you, Jonathan, but I think a reader has probably given me the answer you're about to give me. So let me read out this listener's text. This is Robert in Manchester. He texts in to say, I was brought up in Stoke-on-Trent, you're the MP for Stoke North, of course, in a terraced house with World War II Ukrainian refugees living next door. I went to one of the five grammar schools in the city that sent hundreds to top universities each year. The council closed all the grammar schools in the 70s and the city now only has one outstanding school. No wonder Stoke now has three Tory MPs after always being a Labour fiefdom. In a nutshell, Jonathan, is that why you're calling for grammar schools and you're calling for them now? It's about ending the postcode lottery, Patrick, that we currently have 
which we know 60% of schools currently sit um, in London and the South East as our grammar schools. That's simply not right. There's not a single grammar school in the entirety of the North East. And so what I want is to have kids in Stoke-on-Trent have the same opportunities as kids in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is where I grew up. Uh, and so I just think it's so important that we offer that diverse range of choice for parents, for pupils, most importantly, and create competition, healthy competition amongst our schools to really drive up results. Your detractors, Jonathan, or people who disagree with you would, would say in response to that, look, it's, you know, it's true that grammar schools can improve educational outcomes, but a lot of the data suggests that they hinder social mobility rather than help it. And it's middle class kids who end up benefiting. What do you say to what do you say to those people? Well, if we look at where current grammar schools currently are, then that data is going to be backed up. And that's the problem. They are in areas where there are not levels of deprivation that you see in places like Stoke-on-Trent. I actually agree with what Lord Baker said earlier, that I would use the education investment areas as the places to target these type of schools initially as a pilot, as one idea, in order to show the benefits they can have within local areas. Or the other idea is that you use existing maps or oh, sorry, multi-academy trusts, um, and within them, you allow them to bid for a new free school that's selective or allow them to turn one of their schools into a selective school so that at maybe at 13, before children start their GTSEs, they can then, if they want to, put those children into that school. But obviously that does require the multi-academy trust having schools within a localised area. So there are different ideas. I definitely think the system needs reforming. I'm not one of those advocating for just copy and paste of what we've got now. You know, I think 11 plus, 13 plus, 16 plus, is perfectly acceptable, and I've obviously shared some other ideas. So I do think reforms needed, but I do think that choice should be allowed to exist in every part of our country, not just in the wealthy South. And as long as you say children who fail those selective tests to get into grammar schools have a broad range of other options, so it's not the old system, and this is what a lot of opponents of this this plan would say, they'd say, well, look, if you're selecting an 11 it's a lifelong humiliation for kids who fail the 11 plus. We heard earlier in the show from Lord Prescott, uh, the former Labour Deputy Prime Minister, who said he was haunted by that failure forever. And lots of other kids say the same thing. But you, you're not advocating for a return to the days of grammars and secondary moderns. And it's that stark a division. You've, you've hit the nail on the head, Patrick. And by the way, I am also someone who failed their 11 plus. My brother passed it. So, you know, but I wasn't treated like some black sheep in my family. And I was very lucky uh, that I had a really good education. No, you're right. I'm not looking to go back to grammars versus secondary moderns. What I want is high-performing academies such as Michaela, brilliant schools like they are, but sadly we haven't got enough Catherine Burwell things to spread out across the country. I'm looking for, you know, grammar schools as another option, and I'm looking for where we are academising, and hopefully to fully academise by 2030 based on the schools bill that's going through Parliament, you know, some of the best practice spread across the country. But my what I just think is, is about fairness and making sure the postcode lottery is ended and that places like Stoke-on-Trent, places like Teesside have the same opportunities like Kent, like London. And you're making a pretty uh, pretty convincing pitch there, Jonathan, to be Liz Truss's education secretary. Do you like what you've heard from her on grammar schools? No, I mean, <laughs> Patrick, I can promise you, I'm doing this because this is what I think is the right thing, right thing for the people I'm proud to represent in Stoke-on-Trent, North Kidsgrave and Talk. Um, I like what I'm hearing about Liz with her six-point plan, wanting to really be that champion of education. And obviously, you know, she's talking about lifting the ban, which I think is right. 
but she's also made it actually her bigger point about really spreading the best quality multi-academy trusts and free schools, really bolstering that. And sadly, we've only just got to wave 15 in the two and a half years I've been a member of parliament, despite my numerous attempts to ask the question of Treasury uh, when this was going to come forward. So I'm really pleased that Liz wants to unleash the benefits of free schools across our country. I'm really pleased that she wants to look at the flexibility on childcare and the ratios when it comes to staffing, which is so important. Uh, to try and drive costs down long term, but obviously also to have a look at how we actually finance universities. There are simply courses that are not offering value for money to those students who are studying them. We for too long allowed the Labour rhetoric of university is the only way to succeed uh, exists in our education system. Lord Baker is bang on the money. When I go and visit Stoke-on-Trent College, we have a major shortage of welders, for example. And I met uh, a fantastic woman, you know, in her mid-30s, single parent, had gone to uh, Stoke College, got herself a welding qualification, now is on a level three and is actually employed by the college to teach others whilst also looking to gain more industry experience mm. and having that wraparound care as well that she's able to access for childcare to enable to do that. That's the type of thing I want to see is uh, I want to see that attraction of uh, opportunity. So the technical education and vocational education, as well as obviously the high performing, uh, you know, A-levels that we have and GCSEs that are so important as well. We've got to have a mix. We've got to drive more people into apprenticeships, more people into skills and let people know that if you want to become a plumber, that's not something to look down upon. Sadly, that was the case under Labour governments when I was going through school. I saw that they were sort of talking down those professions. Being a plumber is absolutely essential to this country and our economic growth. And you're as important as someone going to do a history degree, to be perfectly frank. Well, Jonathan Gullis, Tory MP for Stoke North, former teacher, backer of Liz Truss and one of the most vocal advocates for the return of grammar schools on the Tory benches, despite, we just learned, failing the 11 plus himself. So there you go. Now, let's get the opinion of a policy expert. Natalie Pereira is Chief Executive of the Education Policy Institute and she joins me now. Morning, Natalie. Good morning. Uh, What do you think about what you've just heard from Jonathan Gullis there? Do you think there's anything in his argument that, yes, all the data suggests that uh, grammar schools are drivers of social inequality rather than bridging the gap and increasing social mobility, Is there anything in his argument that, yes, that's bound to happen when uh, most of them in this country are in, say, leafy Kent? Uh, Well, what our research has found is, as you say, that grammar schools is not an effective way to improve education equality or to close the gap. And what we need to remember when we think about the expansion of grammar schools It's not that parents or children choose grammar schools. Actually, it's grammar schools that choose the the children that go there. So when we talk about choice, it works very differently under a grammar system. What's really important to also bear in mind is that disadvantaged gaps emerge very early on. So by the end of primary school, roughly when uh, children take the 11 plus, um, those from poorer households are already about nine months behind their more affluent peers. So taking the 11 plus at that point really means you're measuring an inbuilt uh, inequality. And what that has resulted in is far fewer pupils from poor backgrounds attending grammar schools than is the case nationally. Why do you think, uh, Natalie, this debate keeps returning? Is it a simple case of 
nostalgia on the right of politics among conservatives and indeed uh, lots of Labour politicians too uh, sometimes get misty-eyed about grammar schools or is it because there are lots of people in this country, to be fair, who went to grammar schools, who are from poor backgrounds and can tell a positive story. You can say, yes, actually, it was trans- it was a transformative impact for me, particularly, you know, in places like Northern Ireland and, and Lincolnshire uh, and, you know, the grammar schools dotted across the country. Lots of people have positive stories to tell. Do you think that's why we're still having this debate? I think it's a bit of both of those and not understanding the empirical evidence. So I think one of the things that we do, uh, that it's very human to do, is look at anecdotes of individuals and say they did really well, but actually not really understand what the empirical data is telling you. And what that tells us is that in terms of kind of overall attainment, grammar schools um, don't have an impact. So the country doesn't do better because of grammar schools. And actually where there is a large number of grammar schools in an area, there's a penalty for those that don't get in and particularly for disadvantaged pupils. Well, Natalie Pereira, Chief Executive of the Education Policy Institute, thanks very much for talking us through some of the data and some of the more empirical findings about whether grammar schools are indeed the answer to Britain's educational problems as uh, as both Tory leadership candidates seem to think. That's all we've got time for on today's Redbox Politics Podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.